Good morning. If you brought your copy of God's Word with you, open to the book of Matthew. We are going to be picking up and starting in chapter 6 here this Lord's Day. Titled today's message, Christianity Without Hypocrisy and Dealing with Alms, which is in particular a giving with regard to the poor. Remember Jesus said, the poor and the needy you will always have with you, right? Just tracking to make sure you're kind of with me this morning. He, he did say that, right? Yeah, and so there's a need for, in their day, it was referred to alms. We think it maybe perhaps it's just giving to those who are poor, and the poor you will always have with you. Jesus is going to make a shift in, the, in our text this morning in his teaching, and in chapter 5, verses 21 through 48, he focused, he, Jesus, he focused on six representative aspects of the law and what he, as now the new covenant lawgiver, needed the people of God to understand and to believe. Now that he, this new covenant lawgiver, has come to fulfill the law and to establish his kingdom. Jesus taught both the original hearers and us even all the way down to today, the important lesson that it is indeed better to obey than to sacrifice. It's better to obey than sacrifice, that the heart of the matter is the matter, that the letter of the law is much easier to keep than the spirit of the law. And he showed us all by... Uh, emphasizing the need for an inner moral righteousness that would be that which surpassed the scribes and the Pharisees. And then he proceeded, if you remember, we spent several weeks doing this, but he kind of gutted us all in the areas of murder. Oh, I feel good about myself. I'm, I've never murdered anybody. Oh, but have you had hatred in your heart towards your brother? Well, yes. Doesn't everybody? Well, then you're guilty of murder. Oh, wait a second. That's not right. Well, as a matter of fact, it is right because the heart of the matter is the matter, and God is after the heart. And so he did that with the sixth commandment on murder, the seventh commandment on not committing adultery. And then he looked at divorce and oaths of being promise keepers, even against our own hurt of letting your yes be yes and your no be a simple no and beyond that, anything beyond that he said is evil. He taught about not taking personal revenge, but of leaving room for the Lord and thus loving like God loved, loving both your neighbor and your enemy. You see, Jesus as the new covenant lawgiver has thus put everybody on notice, both Jews and Gentiles, that the new standard that must be met for entrance into his eternal kingdom is an obedience to God from the heart. We saw this very clearly on the last verse in chapter 5 where Pastor Matt finished preaching on chapter 5 last week when Jesus concluded that section by saying, therefore, as a result of these things that he's been teaching us to this point, the obvious conclusion is that you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, this word perfect here is from a Greek word, teleos, 
which has this definition of pertaining to being, yeah, perfect. Um, in the sense of not lacking any moral quality. Perfect. So whenever we talk about God's in the business of conforming us into the image of his son, what is the image of his son into which we're being conformed? Is it not that of the moral quality of the character of his son, Jesus Christ, that we are to be being conformed into? And so it's obvious then that the reason he says and makes the comparison of this perfection with the with with heaven's perfection, with the Father's perfection, is because the Father himself, by means of himself, is in the very business of perfecting his kids to look like himself. So it's very certain that this perfection is an absolute perfection of moral quality. Now, I know probably what most of us are thinking, and you probably started thinking it last week, right? I mean, with man, such perfection is utterly impossible, right? And the Word of God would affirm what Brother Royce just said. He said, right, so long as man possesses a fallen sin nature whereby he lives in accordance with his father Adam's inherited nature. But the impossible becomes a possibility for those who will but trust and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Which is what true and genuine repentance is all about, which is where Matthew started his gospel from both the preaching of John the Baptist and Jesus himself, a call for true repentance from the heart for those who have interest and entrance into the eternal kingdom that is now at hand. Because it's at that point of genuine salvation that God gives the newly redeemed child of his something that's extremely precious. It's a seal. It's a guarantee unto the day of our redemption. It's the promised Holy Spirit. Amen? So with man, it's impossible because we recognize we don't have a power within ourselves to, to perform a level of perfection that this would then require of being perfect like our Heavenly Father is perfect. And it's here where we can know and understand this, this understanding that at the point of genuine conversion, there is a gift of God, the promised Holy Spirit that seals the believer. It's here that we can know and understand a very profound reality. And if you're into taking notes, this might be worth jotting down in one of those beautiful um, note-taking notebooks that I pointed out to you today. And it's this, and it's unalterable. That which God demands, He also provides the power to accomplish. Let me try that again. That which God demands... He also provides the power to accomplish. Amen? And we say that with a little bit of trepidation, don't we? We say that with a little bit of trepidation because we still see ourselves in the mirror of God's Word and we still see that we are not perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. 
even though we are and have become practitioners of righteousness as God's people. The law of sin and death has been removed by the power of Christ's redemption in our lives and the planting of the Holy Spirit within our hearts. We need to live in light of the fact that that which God demands, He will provide the power to accomplish, which, mean, which means in our context here in Matthew, if perfection is likened unto God, and that's what's required for entrance into the kingdom of heaven, you can take it to the bank that God will see to it that all of his kids are perfectly fit for Christ's kingdom. And you should never doubt that. After all, who can stay the hand of God? No man. If God says that he's going to do something... Do you think God's going to do it? Can you thwart God's plan? Can you flex your muscles enough to say, God, you want to go that way? I'm not letting you go that way. I'm taking you this way. Is it possible with man? With man, that is impossible. So when the Apostle Paul tells us that he's very confident of something, we too need to be very confident of this very thing that the Apostle Paul was overly confident in, and it was of this very thing that he, God, who began a good work in you, definitive sanctification or justification, when you truly repented of your sins and you came to saving faith, you recognized that you were a sinner in need of salvation. You cried out to God to save you and to rescue you from the pit in which you fell. Notice this. He will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Are you confident of that very thing, church? When you see your life and you see the, the ongoing, outworking, daily walk, are you seeing a level of confidence that He who began to work good work in you is perfecting it? Having walked with Jesus for five years or ten years or fifteen years or for some of you fifty years, the longer that you've walked with Christ, the longer you've had the imbibing Holy Spirit, the longer you've had it practicing righteousness and not practicing lawlessness, are you not seeing the evidential work of the Holy Spirit, that divine nature at work in you, bringing about a conformity to the image of Jesus Christ? The degree to which you don't see that is the place where Peter says we need to check our spiritual pulse and make certain that we have genuinely repented of our sins. Because no man can stay the hand of God. It doesn't matter how eloquently we may word something. Paul was confident of this and we need be as well. And noticed he also used this concept of perfection. He will perfect it. What did Jesus say that we are to be what? Perfect? As our Heavenly Father's perfect, God who saved you will perfect you unto glorification the day of Christ Jesus. This word perfect here is epitello. It's, 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 in, the, it's in the same root that we get teleos of pertaining to being perfect. It's in that same root. Epitello is to bring an activity to a what? Successful finish. He who began a good work in you will bring it to a successful finish until the day of Christ Jesus to, to complete, to finish, to end, to accomplish. And what God has set out to accomplish in you is to bring about your ultimate perfection 
unto the day of Christ Jesus. God will make you perfect unto the day of Christ Jesus when he glorifies you. You will then be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And in the meantime, we go from definitive sanctification, that's justification, we are positionally perfect, we're positionally righteous always and forever, amen. We have a progressive sanctification where we're working it out. It's a, it's a work of God and man. He's at work in us. We're working it out. We're laboring. We're practicing righteousness. We're getting better at being righteous because we love God and those who love God and want to see Him um, work towards a perfection and holiness as he is holy, and then he will bring us home one day, a day of glorification, where we will be totally and perfectly conformed to the image of Christ's character. And thus we will be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Amen? Lord Jesus, might it be so. And it's to this point at the end of chapter 5 and all of these illustrations concerning the law and how we fail to meet the letter of the law truly, that the heart of the matter is the matter. All of this, it seems, was to lead his audience then and us, his audience today and anyone who looks into the Word of God to an overpowering sense of spiritual bankruptcy for the singular purpose of showing us of our desperate need of Jesus Christ. Of saying, I've had enough of me. I've had enough of trying to figure this thing out on my own. I'm just going to simply do what Jesus says do. What's the, um, what's the, the sin quinon of discipleship? The singular thing without which you don't have discipleship, I think it's when Jesus said, and teach them to obey all I've commanded you. And so as disciples of Jesus Christ, we look into the word of God and we look to see what Jesus said and we try to perfect those things in our lives as best we can and we strive for them. And when we sin, and we will, what do we do? We repent like Peter repented. Maybe not as quickly as Peter did, but no doubt we will. And we continue to try to practice being practitioners of the righteousness of God. And so Jesus leaves all of us at this point. And I think as Pastor Matt left us at the end of last week, there was a sense of urgency of making certain that, Lord, is this me? Have I come to this place where I'm recognizing my desperate need for Christ, the one who can save me from my sins? Am I desiring to be perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect? Lord, might that be true of us, his church. Does our culture need to see more of Christ in each of us today than ever before? I mean, that's cliche. Everybody's been saying that for every, every passing generation. But it just seems truer today, I don't know. It, it doesn't not just feel more like a truth statement today. People need the Lord, and you're the hands and feet being conformed into his image. And so Jesus is going to then pick up in chapter 6 with a very obvious connection to the desire of one who, from the heart, because the heart of the matter is the matter from the heart, is desiring to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect, who hears the teaching of the new covenant lawgiver, and we're saying, Lord, we... 
we not only not want to, do we not want to commit murder and break the sixth commandment, we don't even want to hate our, our neighbor or our enemy. We don't even want to hate people because that is like murder. Help me not to be hateful at the heart. Not only do I not commit adultery physically, I don't want to commit adultery in the heart. Help me to not commit adultery in the heart. And he says, okay, then cut off your hand and pluck out your eye. Lord, I don't even want to... And so, and he, and we're the, and we are these people who are saying, "Lord, we want to be like this. We want to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect." And when Jesus gets to chapter six, verse one, he brings out a very obvious temptation that might befall such a one who becomes zealous for being like God is perfect. And he says, "There's something we need to be aware of." We need to beware of practicing righteousness before men. Now, isn't that the very thing that we're supposed to be doing is practicing righteousness? Because we practice righteousness, we thus get conformed more to his image, and we're doing the very thing the new covenant law keepers telling us to do. We're not hating our enemies. We're loving them, actually. And we're praying for those who persecute us, and we're doing these things. And he says, yeah, but make certain that the motive, again, the heart of the matter is the matter. Make certain that your motive for doing those things is not for self aggrandizement, not to be noticed before men. Do not practice. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Because as the heart of the matter is the matter, God is the one that judges the heart of the matter in each man. Because he says, otherwise, if your desires and your motives are off, you have no reward with your Father who's in heaven. You want to be noticed by men of practicing your righteousness before them? Paid in full, perhaps you got that very thing, if that's indeed what you were going for. But verse 1 of chapter 6 here serves as an introductory verse, which will have application to the next three illustrations that Jesus is going to give us in chapter 6. We're going to see from verses 2 down through verse 4 the idea of generosity, the idea of almsgiving to the poor. We're going to see in verses 5 down through verse 15 application with chapter 6 verse 1 of being aware of not practicing our righteousness before men and the aspect of prayer in our prayer life. And then in verses 16 and 18 with regard to fasting. And each of these from generosity, almsgiving, prayer, and fasting, each of these will represent in their own way the reality of a changed life by the power of the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, before one is saved and their hearts are changed before God, they're not obviously going to be generous for the purpose of giving to the poor. They're probably not going to be praying to the Father, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done. And they definitely aren't going to be fasting for any particular purposes that conform them more into the image of Jesus Christ. These things represent the reality of what changed lives look like by the power of the Holy Spirit. Each of these are indicative of a person who's growing in grace. Each of these are indicative of a person who's working out their salvation with fear and trembling. Each of these seem to be an aspect of the spiritual discipline in the life of the child of God who's growing in an understanding of how to be perfect as their heavenly Father is perfect. And each of these, as we see here in verse 1 of chapter 6, when done rightly, are accompanied by what? They're accompanied by the reward from heaven. Now you can forfeit that reward when you do it wrongly, but each of the spiritual disciplines, each of these aspects of growing in a Godward life, of growing in a walk with the Lord, are accompanied when done rightly by the reward of heaven. 
So these are spiritual disciplines and or practices that the child of God will be being engaged in, and that for the glory of God, not to be noticed by men. However, there is this warning. It's the word beware. And notice this. Here's our Greek word, proskeo, for beware. To be in a continuous state of readiness. To learn of any future danger, need, or error and to respond appropriately. Beware of any future danger or error and respond appropriately. So beware of doing this, otherwise you lose something that's very precious and valuable indeed. And notice it says a continuous state. It's in an active, this verb is in an an active, present, imperative state in the Greek. It's something that you are actively, presently, and commanded to be in a continuous state of readiness to make certain that you don't fall prey to hubris, to pride, of practicing righteousness before men in such a way that you will be noticed by them. And it seems that there's a, a need within our hearts, to, we, we love to be noticed by people. Have you noticed that within yourself ever, at least once? I have. As people, we love the applause of men. We clamor for it. We will go out of our way for it. We will strain earnestly for it. And in certain contexts, it's probably not inappropriate. But in other contexts, it is. If you're playing sports, and let's say you perhaps are on the, I'm going to say basketball court, because that's my, I'm more knowledgeable there. Um, When they put you out there, they want you to play for the glory of God, right? Without question. But when you're doing well and you're making buckets or dropping the dime or whatever it may be, what happens in the, in the stands? You get the applause of men. You don't stop in the game and say, no, 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 don't, you, you do, do not do that. That would be something you would need to be aware of, of practicing righteousness before men. You don't want them to think, oh, I'm so, I'm so holy, I need you to not do that. It's like a, it's like a feign desire, it's insidious. I mean, we, <laughs> we, we have to be careful that we realize that the heart of the matter is genuinely the matter, and we need to be aware of this very thing within ourselves. We can be even so um, deceitful in our hearts that we can practice almsgiving the way that Jesus teaches to practice almsgiving in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, and we do it in such a private, secret manner that absolutely nobody would know anything about it. And so internally, we pat ourselves on the back for being so holy and doing it rightly. 
The temptation towards pride is the original fall, it seems, with Satan, and that which led Adam and Eve to be, they too wanted to be like God, and we have to guard ourselves. We have to be aware, a continuous state of readiness to be aware of this within ourselves. The future danger of pride, of practicing righteousness, of being generous, of being a prayer warrior, or of being one who fasts often, and of doing such things to be noticed by people, to make ourselves a good name among the people of God. And so here again, Jesus is getting to the heart of of the matter again, dealing with motives. Because on the one hand, doing such things is not bad in and of themselves and that we are commanded to do these things, but we need to practice being generous. We we, We need to practice the discipline of praying. We need to practice the discipline of fasting from time to time. but we need to make certain that we're aware of our tendency to trend in our hearts to pride. Is there anything with holding men and women of God in high esteem? There's nothing wrong with that at all. But if we do it in such a way that it glamorizes their ego like we sometimes do in the American culture, this Western culture in which we live, and thus we have esteem such pastors to such high pedestals that they become uh, the preferred pastor of listening. It's one of the things uh, that sometimes makes uh, the pastoring of local churches all the more challenging. It's because everybody has their preferred perfect pastor, the guy they listen to on the radio or the podcast or the whatever it may be out there somewhere. And we can elevate them to such a a platform that they become the standard for almost everything. Well, hey, pastor, did you hear so-and-so? I think, you know, or hey, did you? We have a tendency to want to do that with men. And while it's not a wrong thing to give great appreciation and honor to whom honor is due, we need to make certain that whatever we do, we we do all of it for the glory of God. So beware, church. Be ready to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And whatever you do, whether giving or praying or fasting, do all for the glory of God, not self. And in what sense is this reward of heaven that he talks about here? He talks about this loss of reward. In what sense, perhaps, is this reward in What then are we looking forward to by means of reward from heaven? Well, in the simplest terms, it could simply be the fruit of a clear conscience and the knowledge that the smile of God is upon us. It's that idea, I think Pastor Matt mentioned it, when we feel his pleasure. But in a transformative sense, the reward of God is nothing less and nothing more than himself. And we might say it like this, conformity into the character of Jesus Christ. More of himself. Jesus is saying that anyone who does not live for the applause of heaven and does deeds so as to be seen and appreciated by others will lose 
this very valuable reward, no matter how good or beneficial the deed was to the one that was the recipient of the alms or perhaps our lengthy prayers or whatever it may be. There's a forfeiture of conformity into the image of Christ. There's a forfeiture of having more of God in us when we don't do it for the glory of God and we do it for ourselves. I think a simple way to say it is that it's possible to love your enemy and have no reward in it. We need to be aware of this pride within ourselves. So Jesus then proceeds in verse 2 to give advice on how to not lose said reward in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. So the first thing that we make notice of here is that Jesus uses the word when. He's not saying if you make a decision to, to give alms to the poor. He's saying when you do this. And so it would seem to be that Christ-like conformity brings about a Christ-like charity with others, and in particular those who are in the state of great need. This seems to be something that Jesus would have an expectation that his disciples would be engaged in when you give to the poor. Let me read just a couple of Old Testament passages. And when I say a couple, I mean this. There are so many Old Testament passages that could have been read that articulated this principle from God to his people, to the needy, to the poor. There were so many of them that we could just literally, we could have just read passage after passage this morning. I'm just going to read a few. Deuteronomy 15, if there is a poor man with you, one of your brothers any of your, in any of your towns in your land which the Lord your God has given you, shall not harden your heart nor close your hand from your poor brother. But you shall freely open your hand to him and shall generously lend him sufficient for his need and whatever he lacks. You shall generously give to him. And your heart shall not be grieved when you give to him, because for this thing the Lord God will bless you in all your work and in all your undertakings. For the poor will never cease to be in the land. Therefore I command you, saying, You shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your needy, and poor in your land. That's back in the, the law, the, the Pentateuch with Moses. And then we jump ahead into the Proverbs. There was a Several of them in the Proverbs. He who shuts his ear to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be answered. He who is generous will be blessed, for he gives some of his food to the poor. He who gives to the poor will never want, but he who shuts his eyes will have many curses. Unless we fall prey to thinking that perhaps the giving to the poor in this kind of a sense is for those whom God has Generously blessed, Arthur Pink in his commentary said this very well. He said, it is therefore a most unchristian attitude to argue we have an, enough to do to provide for our own families. It is for the rich and not for the laboring people to give alms. If the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts, we shall feel for the afflicted and according to our ability shall be ready to relieve the needy, especially such as belonging to the household of faith. 
we see on many occasions within the New Testament the idea of taking care of those who are of the household of faith. Yea, if a situation requires it, shall gladly deny ourselves comfort so as to be as to do more for those in want. And let us not overlook the fact that Christ here designates almsgiving as righteousness. This is, in particular, one of the reasons at JBC we have a benevolence fund. And it's, this benevolence fund is for people within the congregation of this church in particular. We never know when hard times may befall people within our congregation. We just went through a period of two years where people were losing jobs because of an unwillingness to take a vax, perhaps. Times of difficulty can befall people, and the people of God need to be generous with the people of God. And so a portion of the giving that you give on a regular basis to this body goes into a benevolence fund. And you can even designate money into a benevolence fund. Last year we had some large donations that went into the benevolence fund for the express purpose of making certain that we can meet needs of people within this congregation if they were to lose a job or have a need that's beyond their capacity to endure and to handle financially. We, as a church, purposefully, on a monthly basis, send money as a church. Now, these are things that we can do individually, but as a church, we purposefully send money to the John 3.16 mission here in Tulsa. Those are some of the neediest of people within our community, the poorest of the poor. They're sleeping under bridges. They're freezing half to death at night when it drops to temps like it did last night. And so, in a small way, a part of the poor monies that you give go to a mission in town to help put clothes on the back and food and job training and shelter, a place to sleep for those who are needy. Does that mean that that's enough? You say, well, the church is doing it, so I'm, I'm kind of covered. I, I'm giving to the church. They're giving out like that. I'm covered. Well, that's a, that's a good start. But if the Lord has given you an ability, something that's in accord with your ability, to perhaps do more than that, then perhaps you start sending money yourself to John 3.16 or you find another mission in town or you find a ministry in town that's doing similar things and perhaps you could even give from your own excess as the Lord leads to help take care of the poor within the community in which you live. Or perhaps if you hear of a need or of, of a brother or sister within the congregation, One of the things that this reminded me of is the fact that we probably haven't talked openly enough about this benevolence fund to make it a known commodity that if you find yourself in a place of difficulty, we don't want you to just kind of wonder, you're completely stuck, you've exhausted all your resources, you need to come see and talk to your elders. We have monies designated aside that the people of God in this church have given and put there for such purposes as that. Isn't that good news? It's good news. It's what God has asked us to do. However, in doing these things, as meaningful of an expression as they can be, beware. I can just make up a conversation at the end of the service today. I'm standing out in the Four, you're out there and 
Someone comes up to me and say, brother, man, I really appreciate you bringing that to my attention. I'm going to drop a large check in the box for, for a, the benevolence fund next week. Thank you. Do I need to know that? I don't need to know that. And so Jesus is going to get to talking about how we need to be these generous people because it's what God's called us to do, and it's a part of growing in grace and growing in Christ's likeness. but we need to do it in such a way that we're not doing it for the approval of men, but we're doing it for the approval and, and applause of heaven. And so he jumps right there when he gets to verse 3. Notice he says, well, I'm going to finish verse 2 but because no, about not sounding the trumpet. See, that would be an example that I just gave you of sounding a trumpet. Hey, pastor, I'm going to do... Hey, man, you're awesome, brother. And, and, and listen, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to say, thank you so much. And that right there may be all you get out of it. Which, may, if that's what you're after, if you just want to pastor Ben to be like, hey, boy, and give you a pat on the back, I'll, I'll do that. But I'm telling you, the reward from heaven is way greater than, than what pastor Ben's pat on the back could be, as much as I love you, and trust me, I do. The reward from heaven of God giving you more of himself, more of, of his of character development in Jesus Christ is way better than that. Amen? I don't there weren't too many people that were really convinced of that one, Royce. I, I'm telling you, it's, it's way better than that. I promise you. So, yeah, so, so don't sound your trumpets as the, the hypocrites would do in the synagogue and in the streets so that they would be honored by men. That becomes the reward. In full. And there's a loss there. That's not a satisfying reward. It's temporary. It's fleeting. And you're always chasing after it. You always need more of it and more of it and more of it. And it's never satisfying. But when you start getting the reward of heaven, the reward of Christ, more of God, more of Jesus, more of the pleasures that are at His right hand forevermore, they're satisfyingly rich. And you taste and you know that God is good. And you long to be in the house of the Lord. Better is one day in his house and his presence than, than thousands elsewhere, and you grow and panting like a deer after brooks of water, you cannot get enough of God. Therein is the true riches and rewards. Notice how Jesus again fleshes this out when he gets to chapter, uh, verse 3. And again, the assumption is the when, not the if, but when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving will be in secret and your father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. Again, the obvious implication, Christ followers will grow in their understanding of being charitable to the poor, those truly in need. And when Jesus shows us how to do it rightly, he says that it's, it needs to be so secretive that your left hand doesn't even know what the right hand is doing. And if you think about this, this is, this is like a scenario that's actually an impossibility. Um, I mean, the brain center controls the left hand and the right hand, so if, I, if the right hand's doing something, I just kind of know it. But I think what Jesus is doing here, what he's saying, or rather emphasizing here, is the intense and utter privacy that should be practiced when one is giving alms. When one is giving specifically to help aid the poor. There, the, the intensity of the practice 
of secrecy should be so so much, so strong that your, your left hand, if possible, wouldn't even know what your right hand had done in giving the gift. But what if no one knows? We have monuments built in the names of men all over the place, all the time. What if no one knows? It's the best place to be because at the end of verse 4, notice what he says. Your father who sees what's done in secret, so secretive that your left hand doesn't even know what the right hand did, he rewards you for that. And again, what makes the idea of reward from God so right is that even our motive for giving alms to the poor, while of course done in secret, not for the applause of men, can and even should be done for the applause of heaven. Jesus is here affirming that the righteousness that you practice can and should be done for the applause of heaven. And that the drive within you for reward can find its greater expression there than it ever could with the applause of men. And while some might say that we should simply give for giving's sake, What we see here is that God's not interested in sharing His glory with giving sake. Remember, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, or even if you give, you need to do all that you do for whose glory? God's glory. Not for giving's sake. Not for secrecy's sake. Well, I did it in secret. It's for secrecy's sake. It's okay to say I, in your heart before God, I'm doing this, God, because I want the reward from heaven. I want the applause of heaven. I want more of you. I want more of Christ's character developed in me. And the more we do that, the more secretive we become in the practicing of our righteousness. And as we give in obedience to Jesus, to helping those poor among us, and we do that for the glory of God, one of the ways that God aids us in that effort, one of the ways that He aids us as His kids, that that helps us to turn our eyes away from the praise and the vain glory or the approval of men, is exactly by incentivizing our efforts with the assurance of heaven's reward. God is saying, come to me, the fountain of life, the place from which human flourishing begins and ends, and glut yourself on me. And how you get more of my reward is by walking in obedience to my word. So when you give alms to the poor, don't sound the trumpet. Do it so secretively that no one could possibly even know. Your left hand doesn't even know what your right hand is given. And I'm going to pour out upon you the riches of, from the treasures, uh, riches from the treasures of, of, of heaven. 
more of me, more of conformity in the image of my son, Jesus Christ, your capacity to flourish, your human flourishing and your joy in life, in your relationship with your wife, your relationship with people at church, the people you work with, everywhere you go, you're going to experience my pleasures in a greater capacity until the day of perfection when God perfects you and you're perfect just as your heavenly father is perfect the day of your glorification. Isn't that great, church? God is calling us to come and to imbibe deeply on him our great reward in heaven. And I can assure you we're in grave error if we believe we must never seek reward of heaven as the measure of satisfaction for our obedience to the word of God. Because the rewards that God gives are way better than blue ribbons and gold medals or of a crowning wreath for the runner. He is our greatest treasure indeed. So in, a, in practice and in obedience to the word of God, some timeless truths, it seems, can be drawn from this passage on giving, to the, giving alms to the poor. Number one is that the true believer gives and serves to please God, not for the fleeting approval of man. True believers give and serve to please God, the applause of heaven, not for the fleeting approval or applause of men. Secondly, a true believer, when giving to the poor, will do so in utter secrecy. Their left hand won't know what their right hand has done. And thirdly, a true believer will give with a proper understanding of heaven's reward and delight therein. Amen, church? Let's not be merely hearers of the word, 